Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 14? And I do see some new faces, so we're going to just review briefly, okay? Because last week's message is tied to this one, so we can't just jump in. But let's start this morning with verse 15, where Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now, as we studied last week, these words were spoken by the Lord Jesus to his disciples the night before his crucifixion while they were observing the Passover. Uh, that night, the Lord gives his true disciples. Remember, once again, we said Judas by this time had left the room to carry out his betrayal of Jesus. So now Jesus gives his true disciples one last teaching before his death to encourage them for the difficult days that lay ahead. Why did they need to be encouraged? Well, mainly because he had told them in chapter 13, verse 33, that he was going away soon. After his death and resurrection, he would be returning back to his father in heaven. And because of it, they wouldn't be able to go with him. Now, in saying that, He was, in essence, telling them they were going to have to carry on the work of the kingdom without him. That just because he was going away didn't mean the work of the kingdom was going to stop. And not only that, but they would have to continue the work Jesus began without him. But not only that, they would, uh, uh, it was to be expanded, as I'm sure he was, he had talked to them about this before the Great Commission, where it was kind of made, uh, finalized, basically, but, um, that they would have to continue without him and that the work would now, would now extend beyond the borders of Israel. And I'm sure upon telling them that, that he was leaving them soon and they'd have to continue spreading the, the gospel uh, to, uh, uh, you know, everywhere they went now, spreading the gospel and building God's kingdom in his absence, their hearts immediately gripped, became gripped with fear. I mean, as we said last time, I'm sure they were thinking, how are we going to carry out this vital work of spreading the gospel without Jesus? Jesus has the power. If he goes, the power goes with him. I mean, how can we, as simple, uneducated men, I mean, maybe they weren't thinking in these were exact words, but I'll, I'll paraphrase what I'm sure they were, were thinking. You know, how are we, as uneducated, blue-collar guys, supposed to take the gospel to every place, right, in the known world, I mean, Alexandria and Athens and Rome, all these uh, places of culture and sophistication and learning, who's going to listen to us? We're just a bunch of blue-collar fishermen and farmers from the Galilee. How is this even going to be possible? And all this must have overwhelmed them in the moment, prompting Jesus, who knew their hearts, to say in in chapter 14, verse 1, stop letting your hearts grip excuse me stop letting fear grip your hearts and from there through the rest of john 14 the lord sought to encourage them the encouragement came in the form of some promises we looked at last time some incredibly important and precious promises that he gave to them listen to comfort them in the moment and prepare them for the future i'll give them to you he's uh, his promise was he's going away to prepare a place for them, but he said, I will come back to take you to be with me, verses 2 and 3. 
The same power that was resident in him, he was going to give to them to do, to do the work he was calling them to do. Verse 12. Anything they asked the Father in his name would be given to them. Verse 14. Another helper would, would be given to them. He wasn't going to leave them alone and helpless like orphans. Verse 18. Resurrection life would be theirs. Verse 19. They would have spiritual union with the Trinity. Verses 20 and 21. Supernatural teaching, illumination, and help would be given to them by the Holy Spirit, verse 26. And he was going to leave them his supernatural peace, verse 27. So again, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Now guys, uh, I believe this became the main way Jesus encouraged his disciples that evening by telling them that he was not going to leave them alone and helpless, but that he was going to send them another helper, the Holy Spirit, who would never leave them once he came. Now, before we look at that, notice how the Lord prefaced that promise with the words, if you love me, keep my commandments. This statement by Jesus was directed at true disciples of Christ. Remember the context. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, had left the upper room sometime earlier and was at that very moment betraying Jesus to the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. We know from what Jesus said earlier about Judas, earlier in his ministry, but also earlier that evening, that Judas was never a true disciple. Never a true disciple. Jesus wants to assure the disciples that were left, again, his true disciples, that God wants to answer the prayers of his disciples if they are, in fact, his true disciples. Jesus had a lot of groupies that followed him. Chapter 6, many of them walked away and followed him no more because he laid upon them the cost of true discipleship, and they couldn't deal with it. They loved to be groupies, but they didn't want to take up their cross or deny themselves, right? So... Uh, Jesus had many disciples. Not all of them were true disciples, right? Even as there are today. But that's why he said to them, if you love me, keep my commandments. The statement, if you love me, was Jesus' way of identifying, listen, true believers, true disciples. Um, using love and faith synonymously or interchangeably. In verses 11 and 12, he talks about promises given to those who believe in him. And then in verses 15, 21, and 23, he talks about promises given to those who love him. But it's the same group of people he's referring to, his disciples. These were now those who had Jesus' disciples, the ones that were left in that room. And there were many others that had become disciples that were not in that room, okay, uh, that were sprinkled out throughout the Galilee in different places. But these were those who had received Jesus as their Savior, those who had been given salvation. And as a result, they obeyed him. They followed him. Remember what he said earlier in our John chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And they follow me. Following Jesus doesn't make you one of his sheep. It just proves that you are one of his sheep. Right? I mean, hey, before we got saved, we might have gone to church here and there. 
And in our minds, we were following Jesus. Well, let's be honest, okay? It was Sunday morning, maybe, and the rest of the week, we just did what we wanted, okay? I mean, now, those that follow Jesus are proving that they belong to him, that they are one of his sheep. The underlying, underlying idea is that true believers in Jesus, true disciples, will manifest their love for him by keeping his commandments. That's really what he's getting at, okay? And this wasn't a new concept. He had told them that many times, John 10 being one of those that we just mentioned. Listen, guys, keeping God's commandments doesn't make you one of his disciples. It doesn't make you one of his disciples. It doesn't make you saved. It's the evidence that a person is a true disciple of Christ, that they are born again. It's as Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. You'll know the true and the false by their fruit. And guys, a life of obedience to what God has commanded in his word is first on the list of fruits. We prove our love for Jesus. We prove that we are saved by keeping his commandments. Do we do it perfectly? Of course not. Of course not. But let's be honest. Uh, as believers, we know how, radical, how radically different our life is now. All right? Uh, we know that our whole life has been transformed. And we're still being transformed each and every day by the power of the Spirit into the image of Christ more and more, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But as we you know, look ahead, no, we're not all we want to be yet, but we look back and say we're certainly not what we once were. So there's a, there's a transformation taking place. Uh, turn to verse 21, John 14. Let's look at this for a second. We prove our love for Jesus, that we are saved by keeping his commandments. John 14 21 he would go on to say he who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me using love and faith interchangeably okay verse 23 if anyone loves me he will keep my word now in his first epistle john picked up on some of these concepts and kind of elaborated so turn to first john chapter 2 in some ways 1 John is, a, is a, a commentary on some of the most important things Jesus said during his earthly ministry. Things that John listed in his gospel, but expands in his epistle, his first epistle. 1 John 2, verse 3, continuing this idea. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. How do we know we're saved? How do we know we really know Jesus? Not with our head. I grew up knowing Jesus with my head. I went to church. I was baptized, confirmed, everything else. I didn't. I wasn't saved though. I had the information. How do I know now that it's different? How do I know that I've taken that information and invited Jesus into my heart as my Savior, because I keep His commandments? First John three verse twenty and whatever we ask, we receive from him. And that sounds like something Jesus taught in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14 of, uh, of the Gospel of John. So again, John's elaborating, right? And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another love one another as he gave us commandment. So John kind of frames it in a kind of an interesting way. What's the first commandment Jesus gave to us 
when we started to kind of get interested uh, in him, right? Uh, his first commandment was, believe on me, get saved. Now, of course, God can't and won't command you to be saved. But if you want him to start blessing your life and answering your prayers, that's a commandment. And then, of course, loving one another, in that context, loving the brethren. It's a fruit, okay? It's a fruit uh, that we know, and John makes this numerous times in his first epistle. How do we know we're saved? One of the fruit is that we love other Christians. Do we love every other Christian? Probably not. Probably not, and that's something we need to deal with, okay? Right now, I know there are some Christians who say, well, if so-and-so gets to heaven, and I really doubt that, but if he gets to heaven, I don't mind being on the other side of heaven. Yeah, you're not going to feel that way when you get to heaven, all right? Uh, the flesh is gone, and only the love of God prevails, right? But, but let's start working on that right now, okay? Uh, let's not take the attitude, well, when I get to heaven, then I'll love the guy, because right now I can't handle it. Uh, but, but John goes on, verse 24. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him. It's truly saved is the idea. It's how John uses that phrase abides in him and he in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us how do we know the holy spirit lives inside of us one of the ways is he pours god's love into our hearts and we love christians we love the body of christ and then first john 5 verse 3 for by this is the love of god this, this is how the love of god is manifested that we keep his commandments. And again, he's using love as a, as a synonym or uh, in, interchangeably for faith. Uh, how do we know we love God? How, how do we know we're saved? That we keep his commandments. And his commandments, this is important, are not burdensome. Most of us, before we got saved, didn't have any desire to read the Bible. Um, didn't have any desire to live the kind of life God put in in his word that his people were to live. But that radically changed once we were born again. Now obeying what God has said isn't a burden. It's our joy. It's our joy. He has written his laws in our heart. And from the heart now, that's the, what the new covenant's all about. Laws written on tablets of stone, external laws, can't really motivate a person to live a certain way. They could if they fear consequences for breaking those commandments, sure. But if they don't fear the consequences, there's really nothing more uh, external laws written on tablets of stone could do. So the new covenant, God says, I'm going to write my laws in your heart so that you will obey me from the heart. And that's what the new birth is all about. You accept Christ, the Holy Spirit moves in, and you become a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things became new. And we have new desires. We have new goals. We look at life differently now. Everything is new in a sense, Okay. But it's obeying God now isn't a burden. Before I got saved, um, I can't tell you I was really consumed with obeying God and everything. Uh, you know, but if I did, uh, often it was a burden. All right, I'll do it because I don't want God getting mad at me. You know, because if He gets mad at me, you know, then it's going to be bad. So I'll I'll go ahead and do what He wants. But it wasn't a joy. It was a burden. That's religion. Religion lays burdens on people. I had to go to church. I had to read the Bible. I had to pray. When the Holy Spirit moves in, you're a brand new creation. You're born again. 
It's not, now I have to go to church, I get to go to church. It's not I have to read the Bible, I get to read the Bible. See, it's a whole different life. And it's not something I'm, I'm, I'm really trying so hard to do. It's just in my heart now. I love the Lord. I don't want to do anything to dishonor Him or disobey Him or grieve Him. Uh, I love to be with God's people. I love to sing God's praises. I love to go to prayer meetings and lift up brothers and sisters in Christ who are, who are struggling because I love you guys. This is the life that we have now. It's not a burden to obey God. It's a joy, right? And again, this is one of the great proofs that we are now saved and true disciples of Jesus, that we keep his commandments. One author put it well. He said, and I quote, The Lord Jesus was about to leave his disciples, and they would be filled with sorrow. How would they be able to express their love for him? The answer was by keeping his commandments, not by tears, but by obedience. The commandments of the Lord are the instructions which he has given us in the Gospels as well as in the rest of the New Testament, end quote. And so all these promises that Jesus gave to his disciples in the upper room that night were not just given to them, but to every child of God, those who truly love and believe in Jesus, his true disciples, right? Guys, look, love is the greatest motivation for obedience. Love is the greatest motivation for obedience. In the Old Testament, they obeyed out of fear. In the New Testament, we obey out of love. In fact, the Bible says in the New Covenant, perfect love casts out fear. We now obey the Lord out of love because of what he's done for me. I want to obey him, right? Love is the motivation. But it's not just the greatest motivation for obedience. Love for Jesus is the greatest motivation for perseverance i read how a well-known bible teacher had the opportunity to meet harlan popoff the godly hero of the book tortured for his faith she writes and i quote as a prisoner for 13 years harlan popoff endured incredible suffering at the hands of his communist captors when we met she said there was one question i wanted to ask him what kept you faithful? In broken English, he said, what do you mean? Well, I mean, what was it that enabled you to endure? Was it your knowledge of God's word? Or, he interrupted me. He said in a soft voice, when you love someone, you will do anything for them. Now, folks, I want you to remember that statement. I don't know what's coming. I don't know how bad things are going to get. And God might intervene and we might get turned around as a nation and we might be facing the greatest times of prosperity and blessing in our history. I don't know. I hope so. Pray for that. But if it doesn't go that way and things get progressively worse for the people of God, it's your love for Jesus that's going to keep you in there. Your doctrine, great. Uh, I've known men and women who are great Bible teachers. They knew doctrine. That's good. That's wonderful. I don't really think doctrine, per se, is going to give you the strength to stand up to, I'm talking physical persecution. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help you draw from truth that God has given you, of course. But it's the love for Jesus that's going to really keep you going. So you need to cultivate that more now. Everybody in this room, I'm sure, or maybe everybody, 
love Jesus. But we need to be in love with Jesus. Again, I've said it before, let me say it again. I love my sister. I'm in love with my wife. And it's, it's different, obviously. Okay? I have found that this is the greatest motivation for obeying the Lord, even when I don't feel like it. You ever not felt... You ever been in a place where you didn't feel like obeying the Lord? What do you mean? Well, you're at odds with somebody, and you're upset with them. And the Lord puts it on your heart, uh, go ahead and make amends. Oh, Lord, I don't want to do that. I wasn't wrong. They were wrong. Why do I have to go? Do it for me. Oh, okay. And, you know, when the Lord says that, he's got you, right? If the Lord tells me, Phil, will you do it because I'm asking? Will you do it for me out of your love for me? Well, I can't say no to the Lord. How can I look into the eyes of the one who died for me and say, well, Lord, that's asking a little bit too much. Obviously, you can't do that, right? Let's get back to the promise Jesus gave his disciples that night. Again, John 14, verse 15, after he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said in verse 16, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. Now, guys, today and next week, I'd like to present, and I'm going to say a two-part message, but you know how that goes. Uh, I mean well, but sometimes I get going, and then it's like four or five-part message. But anyways, okay. Uh, but this week, I'd like to take the remainder of our time looking at the person of the Holy Spirit, and next week, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe these, not because I'm teaching it, but I believe these truths will transform your life. And Jesus put them, he spoke these truths the night before his crucifixion, preparing his disciples for the work that lay ahead. I'm not just talking in the next few days. I'm talking about for the last 2,000 years. These are truths, I'm sorry to say, the church today, I, I can't say churches are ignorant of these things. Some are. But others are just very uncomfortable because of the weirdness in so many churches with regard to the Holy Spirit and that surround the Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit's weird, but you know, churches have made their relationship with the Spirit kind of they think it's spiritual. You know, the weirder it is, they think, look how spiritual we are. And so a lot of folks have shied away. And so let's look for the next couple of weeks at, I think, one of the most important, if not the most important topic that we as Christians can wrestle with or address, and that is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Let me begin looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. I came across something years ago that uh, one pastor said, and he wrote it, and uh, I'm like, you know, that's one of the best summations of the person and work of the Spirit I've ever read. Let me read it to you. He said, All too often when Christians hear the name of the Holy Spirit, they immediately want to focus on the controversies that surround the gifts of the Spirit, things like tongues or healings or prophecy. Are they still for today or not? The tr and the truth is that most of the body of Christ seems polarized over these issues, with one group in the charismania camp and the other in the charisphobia camp. But I think it, that it's a great mistake to reduce the Holy Spirit down to his gifts. He is greater than his gifts, but sadly too many Christians know only the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but know nothing of the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not an it 
or an impersonal force or a divine power that we simply tap into to use for our ministries or for our benefit like an an electrical outlet you plug into. He is God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He is worthy of our love, our worship, our fellowship, and our surrender. And he desires to have a personal, intimate relationship with us through Jesus Christ. Now, if we only think of the Holy Spirit as a power or force, then our minds are going to be consumed with, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? How can I get more of this power? But if I think of the Holy Spirit as a person, as God who lives in me, then my heart will be consumed with, how can the Holy Spirit get more of me? And it's at this, uh, it's at this very point that many sincere Christians stumble. They're trying so hard to grab hold of the power that they lose sight of the fact that as God, what the Holy Spirit is really trying to do is grab hold of us. And when we as children of God stop looking at him as a power to be obtained and start seeing him as a person to be obeyed, our lives will never be the same. Because it's through surrender to the person of the Holy Spirit that the power of the Holy Spirit will begin to fill and transform our lives, end quote. And again, I think that's one of the best summations on the person of the Holy Spirit I've ever read. Now, let me build a little on that summation. Let me say that when we're talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, um, just because he doesn't have a body doesn't mean he's not a person. Remember what Jesus said in John 4, 24? God is what? Spirit, Right? A spirit doesn't have a body. So just because the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body like we would think of one doesn't mean he's not a person, even though there are groups that teach he's not because of that very reason. He's not a person. The Bible ascribes to him all the characteristics of a living, living, thinking, feeling person. He can be lied to, Acts 5, verse 4. He can be grieved Ephesians 4.30, he speaks. He speaks, John 16.13. He can be resisted, Acts 7.51. He can be insulted, Hebrews 10.29. He can be quenched, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. He can be blasphemed, Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32. And that's just to name some of the traits or characteristics of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Personal pronouns are always used in the scriptures to refer to the Holy Spirit. Now, you can get many of these out of John chapters 14 through 16. There are cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that he is not a person, that he is an impersonal force, like, you know, Star Wars force. May the force be. Some Christians kind of have adopted that mindset. You know, may the force be with you. They're talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, thank you very much. He is with me. And stop calling him a force. That bugs me. Sounds like you're talking about Hinduism or New Age mysticism. Okay, but other groups have picked up on that, right? And they think he's a force. He's like electricity. That's how they describe him. But we would never, nor does the Bible ever, use personal pronouns when talking about something inanimate. The way we would use electricity, of course. All right? So the Bible clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person. Great. How do we know he's God? How do we know he's God? Well, there are so many verses. Let me just give you a few. 
Job 33, verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So God's, So the Spirit is called God. He creates, He gives life. Only God has the ability to give life. All right. Remember in Acts chapter 5, the church was really going, and uh, Christians were just being swept up in God's love. And so what they were doing is, if they had any extra property, they would sell the land and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need, right? Now, the apostles never told them to do that. Some people say, well, see, the Bible teaches communism. No, it doesn't. They were never required by the state. You know, the, the apostles were not the Christian state, quote-unquote, that demanded they give all their excess money to the apostles who doled it out. It was not communism. It was Christian communism. They had all things in common. In other words, they saw their property as being belonging to everybody. But of their own free will they gave, right? So people were giving, laying the money at the apostles' feet, and they were keeping it and using it to help people. And then Ananias and Sapphira, a couple, they were married. They had a piece of property. They sold it, but they kept back part of the money for themselves, but claimed they had given it all to the church. Well, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, knew they were lying. And so he says, you know, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, but to God. Now, you can read Acts 5 to see what happened. Okay, it wasn't good. All right? And, uh, you know, if God acted that way today, um, churches would be a lot less full. But the ones in the church would be a lot more on fire, too. You know, take my money and my gold, not a, not a mite while I withhold. Pow, 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 pow. Got to be wiping people out over the sanctuary, you know? Because that's not true. Take my money and my gold, not a mite while I withhold. Give me a break. You know, we sing these songs and we don't really mean it. But, you know, God wasn't, isn't, as, <laughs> isn't as meticulous about this today. Not that he's, he's um, condoning sin in any way, lying, whatever. But um, again, Peter said to, to these two, you have not, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in the very beginning of the Bible, Acts, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, as being present and part of the creation of the physical universe, bringing everything into existence, right? Speaking it, the Greek, Hebrew word is bara. God created uh, the word is bara, and it means to call into existence something out of nothing. Only God has the ability to do that. I mean, we can be creative, but when we talk about being creative, we're talking about assembling existing materials. When it talks about how God created the heavens and the earth, it says he spoke into existence something out of nothing, and the Spirit was involved in that. Only God can do that. You say, okay, he's God. But how do we know he's not a lesser God than the Father or even the Son? Well, that's a, a, a great point. Back to our text this morning. After Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, he went on to say, I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. The word helper is the Greek word parakletos, and it comes from two different Greek words. Para means alongside, 
and then the verb kaleo, which means to call. So very simply, a parakletos was somebody that was called alongside for the purpose of helping somebody or comforting somebody. It was often used in that culture of a defense attorney who would come alongside a person who was, uh, was um, charged with a crime. And they, of course, would give comfort. Hey, we're going to take care of this. You're being railroaded. So, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, if it was somebody who was grieving the loss of somebody, a relative could be a parakletos, come alongside to comfort you, right? And that's why some of your translations translated comforter instead of helper, right? Now, guys, Jesus himself was the first parakletos. He was the first comforter. God the Son, who became a man, came alongside the disciples physically to help them and to teach them God's truth but also to train them for the work of ministry, for the work of the kingdom, which, again, he made official uh, when he, before he ascended back to his father. He said, you know, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person you come across, okay? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and so on. Um, but, and then upon returning to his father in heaven, he prayed, and the father sent back the Holy Spirit, another helper. Now, Jesus promised us, as his true disciples, that the Holy Spirit would be called alongside of us to help us as a guide, a teacher, a comforter, and listen, an indispensable source of power in our work Jesus had commissioned us to do for the kingdom. Jesus was leaving them soon. Now, of course, this is before his death and resurrection, but he was leaving. That's what he's talking about in verse 18. He was going to be leaving them soon, but he promised that he wasn't going to leave them alone like orphans. You know what? They had gotten very used to having Jesus with them. Think about this, right? I mean, Jesus as the original parakletos who had come alongside to help them, you know, Jesus is a pretty handy guy to have around. The scribes and Pharisees hassling him? <laughs> Turn him over to Jesus. He puts them in their place every time. Uh, you're at a big outdoor gathering and people are very hungry and you've only got a kid's sack lunch. Don't worry about it. Jesus is here. He'll multiply that little bit of food and feed thousands, right? You, you found yourself in the Sea of Galilee and a storm is raging. Don't worry. Jesus is here. He can speak a word and calm the storm. He's a very handy guy to have around, right? As long as Jesus is with us, we can handle any problem. But now he's talking about going away. How, how are we going to continue doing the work without him? Now, of course, Jesus knew their thinking, knew their hearts, and said, look, guys, I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans, helpless, like a little orphan baby that somebody puts, you know, on a street corner and basically says, okay, kid, fend for yourself. No, I'm not going to do that. You're, you're infants in your walk. You, you've just gotten saved. I've been training you how to be my disciples the work is not many of the things i want to teach you but you're not ready to receive them not yet he would say in the upper room to these guys but when the holy spirit comes he will teach you all things and so on all the things that you're not ready to receive right now they, they were like in kindergarten spiritually speaking you can't teach them the deep, deeper things of god like a college course until the holy spirit's been with them for a while and they have time to grow right same is true with all of us now, i'm not going to leave you alone like orphans he had commanded them live a certain kind of a life and commission them for a specific kind of work 
both of which would have been impossible for them to accomplish without the supernatural helper known as the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, the most important thing that Jesus ever said to them with regard to understanding just who or what the Holy Spirit is comes to us in the word that Jesus carefully chose. He called the Holy Spirit another helper. He said, I will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. There are two words for another in Greek. There is the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. We get the word heterosexual from that Greek word. Then there's the word alas, which means another of exactly the same kind. Um, ice is exactly the same as water, but it's in a different form. That's all. Here Jesus used the phrase alas parakletas. In other words, I'm going to send you another helper, another one exactly and essentially like me, only in a different form. God, he is God the Spirit, third person of the Trinity. And just as an aside, in John 14, verse 16, is one of those verses in the Bible that shows the underlying theme of the Trinity. God the Son prays to God the Father that he might send God the Spirit to be with us. So there are groups that say the Trinity is not taught in the Bible. That's absolutely untrue. And we can show you different passages, but you get the idea. This is just one of those where we see this. Um, but again, Jesus was the original Paracletos who for three and a half years came alongside the disciples to help and comfort them. In fact, in John 14 alone, he spends the entire chapter comforting them. Now, as you fast forward to John 16, if you would, he says to them in verses 5 and 7, But now I go away to him who sent me. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, the question that a lot of people would have at this point is, so why go away? Why go away if at all if he was just going to send them the same kind of helper back to take his place? Right? We talked about that last week. All right? That when Jesus was incarnated into the womb of Mary, the Holy Spirit came, overshadowed her, and placed the seed of God, God the Son, in her womb, and it, the, uh, along with her egg, Jesus was conceived as a, in physical form. Okay, God is spirit, right? And before the incarnation, Jesus was spirit too. He wasn't called Jesus. That was his earthly name. He was called the Word, all right? The Word. Uh, being God, he was always there. He ne never had a beginning. When he entered Mary's womb, became, you know, was born a flesh and blood human being uh, that's not when he he came into existence that's just when he became a man to go to the cross and die for our sins or became a child who grew up into a man to go to the cross and die for our sins but um when he took on a human body as we said last time he took on the limitations of a human body he got tired he got hungry and he couldn't be omnipresent anymore god is spirit one of the attributes of God is uh, omnipresence. God is everywhere. Of course, before the incarnation, Jesus was everywhere because he's God. Uh, 
second person of the Trinity, right? But when he became one of us, he took on certain limitations of the flesh. And um, it wasn't until he returned back to the Father that he prayed the Father to send the Holy Spirit back, which the Father did, and the church was born, Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost. At that time, the Holy Spirit began to fill every believer in Christ. And as the gospel spread out to the known world and now beyond, uh, in, to their known world, but now the gospel has covered the entire world, we have people from probably every place on the planet Earth who is a believer. Because Jesus poured the, had the Father send back the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can, in, can indwell every believer and does indwell every believer on the face of the planet. We are all together one body, the Bible says. We are the body of Christ. And we can do things that Jesus could never have done in his physical, being limited to a one location at a time because of his physical limitations, right? So he could only be in the Galilee at one time or in Jerusalem or Jericho. But now the Holy Spirit indwelling in every believer, the body of Christ is spread across the entire planet. And we can be working as the body of Christ in every area of the world, really. And, and the church is. That's why it was important for Jesus to go back to his father. Why go back and just send another helper back to exactly like him? Because this helper would be exactly like him, God, but he would have, be God in a different form. Not limited to one place at a time because the Holy Spirit doesn't have a physical body, but he's certainly a person. We have to understand that. Now, let me close by telling you a story. It's a short story. Uh, actually, it's a story that the great evangelist D.L. Moody told about something that happened to him. When Moody was just starting out in ministry, he didn't fully understand or appreciate the role of the Holy Spirit in his ministry. Uh, back in those days especially, but it's still going on today. People gave the Spirit of God lip service, but they really didn't understand him. And I think a lot of that was because they were afraid in some way. You know, people have got some weird ideas about the Holy Spirit, and a lot of churches don't help, okay? They foster a lot of that craziness. Charismania, yeah, okay? Um, but when Moody started out, he didn't really understand or appreciate the role of the Holy Spirit in his life or in his ministry. The way Moody tells it, one day, after, uh, one day as a young preacher, he uh, came out of a preaching engagement, and as he climbed into his carriage to go home, horse and buggy, right? As he climbed into his carriage to go home, he was startled by an old man with long white hair. Hair. The old man came up, uh, up to his carriage, hair blowing wildly in the wind, and he pointed a bony finger at Moody and said, Young man, honor the Holy Spirit. Church took Moody by surprise. And that was really the extent of the encounter with this, I don't know, flamboyant old prophet-like Mystery man. But the encounter was destined to stay with Moody for the rest of his life. Moody said he couldn't get those words out of his head. Young man, honor the Holy Spirit. God later used those words to revolutionize Moody's life and ministry. His ministry became a powerhouse. Uh, as we've already said, he is known to this day as being one of the greatest evangelists that have ever lived. God used those words to revolutionize Moody's life and ministry. And I'll explain next time what I mean by that. 
But for right now, I want you to embrace those words as if they were spoken to you directly. I want you to do that because I believe just like God used them to revolutionize D.L. Moody's life and ministry for God, they can also do the same for your walk in ministry for the Lord as well. Honor the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I do that? You first of all honor him by stop ignoring him. Stop giving him lip service, but don't really even think of him as a person. Okay? And then you honor him by saying to him, Holy Spirit, I don't own you to do my bidding. You are God in me, living inside of me. You own me. How can I give you more of me to do your will on this earth? Now, that little idea, those little you know, thoughts, is how you begin to honor the Holy Spirit. And right off the bat, if you take those to heart and really think upon them, pray about it, God will start using them, I believe. I think for too many Christians, they have got it backwards. They're trying to get more of the Holy Spirit because they want the power. And all this time, the Holy Spirit has been trying to get more of them. But they're too proud. They're too self-focused. They're too self-willed to surrender to the Holy Spirit. This could be the beginning of a revolution in your walk. So come on back next week, and we'll continue this study, The Promise of the Holy Spirit, Part 2. Father, we thank you for your word, and again, Lord, for giving us understanding about our helper who has come back in your name, not just to walk with us side by side outwardly, but to take up residence in our heart inwardly. And yet, Lord, we ignore the Spirit of God. We grieve him because we don't take seriously um, the relationship that we have with him or should have with him. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work in us, that, Lord, we would honor the Holy Spirit in everything we say and do, and that our goal this year would be to give the Spirit more and more of us rather than trying to manipulate the Spirit to give us more and more of Him. Lord, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.